Hey everyone, welcome to the Work Friends Podcast, where we bring meaningful conversations to you. I'm Jen Brubaker, and I'm here with my co-host, work and real friend, Ainsley Stanley. This is the identity crisis season, and this is a must-listen conversation. So go on a walk, sit in the sun, get some fresh air in those lungs, do whatever you need to do, and enjoy today's episode. Today on the podcast, we're chatting with Paul Robertson, youth culture specialist at Youth Alone and YFC Toronto. He's a former youth worker with YFC, and now he's a sought-after speaker that trains and equips parents, youth workers, and students. Today, we're going to talk about cyberspace and our online identities. Paul's going to bring some great insight on the current research on technology, its effect on youth and adults, and how we can cultivate a better relationship with technology. Enjoy! Well... Thank you so much for coming and welcome. This is your official welcome to the Work Friends podcast. We are so excited to have you. You've actually, we have like a big massive list of people that we have in a spreadsheet of like guests we'd want to have someday that we, we put in like over a year ago now, way before the podcast started. And you've been in the list since the beginning. Wow. So you maybe didn't know that, but we are so excited to finally have you here. Yeah. So very exciting. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, my name is Paul Robertson. I'm the Youth Culture Specialist with Toronto Youth Unlimited. I'm in my 41st year of ministry. Uh, I started Highlands Youth for Christ back in 1980, came to Toronto to be the Executive Director in 89, Uh, fired myself in 1995 because I didn't, I'd rather be doing teaching things like this. And uh, for the last 25 years, I've also been on associate staff with Walt Mueller down at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. So for the last 25 plus years, my focus has been on how can we better understand our kids in order to have better relationships with them. So, uh, And in the process, I've raised four sons and now have uh, not only four sons, but four daughters-in-law, five grandsons and two granddaughters. So life is full. It, it blows my mind, the legacy, like 40 plus years. That is, I mean, Ainsley and I are 23, turning 24 this year. That wow. You've been teaching about youth culture and whatnot, like more than our life, which is, yeah, a testament to God's goodness and, yeah. and your faithfulness. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Jen. Can you start up the conversation by answering what is cyberspace? Kind of lay a foundation for our conversation here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, cyberspace, I used to ask parents, especially if I was doing a parenting seminar, at the beginning of a seminar on technology, of which I have a number of them, uh, is cyberspace a real place, yes or no? And be prepared to give evidence as to why you said what you said. Uh, In the early days, early days being five or six years ago, usually 80% of the parents and some of the youth workers would say, there's there's no such thing as cyberspace. I think those numbers have changed. But the problem we have with cyberspace, I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like something you'd find in a Star Wars episode where you travel to a new planet and perhaps how you were taught to do battle doesn't work any longer because all the rules have changed. And I think cyberspace is like that. And, and the fact that even now we're sitting in front of our computers, uh, I'm in my office basement uh, here in Oakville. I look around, I see my bookshelves and pictures of my grandkids and what have you. And, uh, and, and it's 
and it feels like nothing has changed when we connect online. But in fact, when you go online, you've been transported to a new dimension in terms of your awareness and your emotions and the responses you will give to stuff, to behaviors, to things you will say, and especially your sense of time gets distorted. Most people will end up in cyberspace, meaning online, for much longer than they anticipated. If you don't think that's true, next time you go online, just cover up that little clock in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and do what you're going to do and then come back and guess how long you've been online. And, and over 90% of people will be online longer than they anticipated. And the problem is that they don't believe that when they're going online or going into this new environment that they've gone anyplace new, but that's where they get fooled. They're fooled by the sense that nothing has changed. They get fooled by when I look around my computer, I still see everything that I'm used to. But we need to remember that nonetheless, the conditions and the rules and the boundaries that are observed in cyberspace are nothing like real life. And how we were prepared to live in this life in terms of ethics and morality and understanding things uh, kind of goes out the window when you go out into cyberspace. And uh, let me give you one piece of evidence. In 2016, there was a high school in Kilgore, Texas. It was Kilgore High School. Uh, 850 students, over 200 of them in that school were caught with sexting images on their phones. Now, I think if we could get the other 600 phones, there'd probably be just about every phone would have sexting images on it. And it made national news, it made news around the world. How could kids do something like this? Well, that's the nature of cyberspace. Because if those same kids that were posting those sexting images if a, if a girl went up to her bedroom after dinner and said, you know, I'm going to take a, a, a picture of my naked upper body and I'm going to print off a thousand eight by 10 glossy pictures of this. And when I get to school tomorrow, I'm going to hand my pictures out as I walk down the hallway. In fact, I'll give five or six to people I don't know, and then they can give them to people I don't know. Or a boy up in his room deciding he's going to take a nice picture of his package and again, print off 500 glossies and walk up and down the hallways at school and hand them out to people he doesn't even know who in turn will pass them around. And if you had 200 kids who just bombarded or flooded the school with glossy pictures, you would go, that's ludicrous. Nobody in their real mind would do that. Exactly. Nobody in their real mind in this world with our morality and boundaries would do that. But when you go into cyberspace, there are no rules, there are no boundaries, there is no policing, so to speak. It's the Wild West and can become a very dangerous place for children and for teens. So cyberspace is a real place. It's like a, it's like a dimension we haven't discovered yet. But, you know, life is lived out there and there's some very dangerous neighborhoods out there and a lot of kind of weird things going on. Now, I'm not against technology, let me just say that. I mean, if I didn't believe in technology, we wouldn't be doing <laughs> our, our Zoom and podcast. And, you know, my wife has a phone, we text and that. So I'm all about how do we use technology to make us healthy people? Yeah, I think that the more we become aware of the realities of cyberspace, that hopefully the better we can understand it. I remember 
when I was in high school, there was an app called Vine that had six second videos. I don't know if you knew about that. And it was literally the only thing it had on the app was six second videos. And I remember going on and thinking, wow, like there's no way that I can spend very much time on it, right? You know, you can only watch six seconds of a video. And every time I would get off of it, I'd be like, how did I just spend half an hour watching six second videos, but it just literally felt like you were in another place and you had no sense of time. Um, it's crazy. And I think it's getting probably increasingly worse as far as our addictive technology. And, and let me ask you a question on those six second videos. Did you have to hit the next one or did they automatically just keep playing? I think they automatically kept playing. Yeah. And that's why you couldn't get away from them. Yeah. It's like, exactly. it's like YouTube, right? And you have to disconnect. You have to say, no, you don't want to watch anymore. Yeah. You don't, yeah, yeah you yeah. can click on it anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that um, addictiveness. Talk about that addictive nature, this persuasive nature of technology and just like the almost irresistibility of social media. Well, on more than one occasion, I've had this happen when I've been out doing a, a seminar back in back in the old days when we could actually go out and be in the same room. And I miss that so much. But I remember being in Brockville doing something for Brockville uh, Youth Unlimited one time. And I had a father who came up to me even before the seminar started. He knew it was on technology. And he came up to me and he started to tell me about his 15 year old son. And, and he started to get shaky, his eyes filled with tears, the tears ran down his cheek. And he just said, you know, Paul, my son is addicted to online video gaming. He will play six or seven hours a day. I don't know what to do to get him off, in, off, the, uh, off plane. Nothing seems to work. I feel like such a failure. And, and, I, and I've had, you know, so many of those kinds of conversations over the last five or six years. How did it happen? Well, here's how it happens. Our kids are being manipulated by technology. Now, every time a kid looks at a screen, and in a few minutes we can talk about the difference between girls and guys when it comes to screens, but every screen you look at, every screen your children look at, every screen a teenager looks at, is the result of a virtually unrecognized merger between the technology industry and psychology. And so behind every screen that your kids look at, all the social media stuff, especially the online gaming, is an army of psychologists, neurologists, social science experts, experts in design who use their knowledge of psychological vulnerabilities that all of our children have to design products to addict them and mainly for financial gain. And so what happens is we have this whole army of warriors who are designing things to exploit kids whose brains aren't fully developed. And that's the thing that bothers me. When you get to be 25, now Ainsley and Jen, you're almost at 25. <laughs> and, and at that point, your brains will be fully developed and you'll be much smarter. Now you're smart already. <laughs> but, you know, the brain of a 13 or a 14 or a 15 year old kid is very vulnerable. They don't have the life experience that we have. And so it is designed to exploit them. Psychology is the new weapon that's being used against innocent children. Psychology used to be our friend, but when you mix it with technology, 
It's become our enemy. And so what they use is something called persuasive technology. And it's a discipline in which digital machines and apps such as smartphones, social media, online gaming are all configured to alter human thoughts and behaviors without us even knowing it. So Ainsley, you talked about the six second videos. It alters your thinking. It just keeps going. And our brains always thirst for no new experiences. And so it keeps you sitting there watching this stuff. And so persuasive, des persuasive design works by convincing our kids that they can become fully actualized human beings in cyberspace. And I don't think God ever created us for that. We were created to become fully human through Jesus, through real life experiences. And so what happens is they, they use things to keep us going on. I mean, the very fact that you have your cell phones, I mean, I'm always amazed as a guy who grew up in an era when all you had were phones on the wall and you couldn't take them out of the room and your parents listened to your conversations with your girlfriends and all this, how embarrassing that was. But I mean, I'm always amazed at how many people walk and carry their phones. They have to hold them. There's research that shows that some people touch their phones 2,500 times a day. Wow. But you know what it's like. You go through the malls back when we could go through malls. People love to hold these things. They were designed to feel good in your hand. That's where it all starts. And then it conditions us to respond to it. And so through notifications, YouTube loops, uh, fear of missing out, whatever the hook is going to be to keep them engaged, we have that happening. It was interesting. When Facebook first started and they wanted to send out notifications, the, the, the notification button was blue. And what they discovered was very few people were clicking on it. And so... Facebook technology went to the psychologist and said, look, the blue button doesn't seem to be working. Psychologists say, well, it's because you got the wrong color. You need red. Red is a color that we can't resist. Red is a color of action. Fire trucks are red. Stop signs are red. Red lights are red. And so they had the wrong color. So Facebook actually switched it to red. And guess what happened? The rest is history. Everybody uses red notification buttons because our brains are conditioned to act on it when we see it. And then you have YouTube loops, you know, that, that you have to opt out of it. There's nothing online, and, and Ainsley, this is specific to your, your six-second video. There's nothing online now that says it's over. When you watch television, you, you, you have... 12 minutes, some commercials, another 12 minutes, and some commercials, and the show is over. And you have to, you then have a little downtime for your brain to decide whether you not, whether or not you want to keep watching. That's not the way it works online, because online is all about how much time can we keep you there. And the last thing that they do, and they do a lot of things, but we're just hitting some of the highlights, is that they use classical conditioning. Classical conditioning is intermittent conditioning. So think of it this way. If every 60 seconds you got a notification on your phone, I don't care what it is, message, uh, email, whatever, text. If every 60 seconds your phone dinged or whatever the sound is, after about 10 minutes of that rhythm, 
you would be bored, you wouldn't answer it, you'd pay no attention to it. Psychologists said, no, 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 intermittent. So intermittent, and you can go on your phone and have a thousand different notifications, sounds, symbols, whatever you want. That's classical conditioning. You never know when it's coming. And so what happens is you begin to, to, to link up with your smartphone, holding it, waiting to feel that vibration or to hear a noise, but you never know when it's coming. So your brain and is exhibiting or, or excreting dopamine to keep you on the edge so that as soon as it goes off, man, you got it. And what happens is this. Uh, I don't know how many people listening have had that experience where you swear your phone vibrated in your pocket yeah. and it wasn't even in your pocket or you, you swear you heard it vibrate on your desk and, and it wasn't even on your desk. That's a sign that they've got you hooked because your brain is so hungry for a notification. It begins to trick you. And I'm very careful. I, I, I leave my phone on do not disturb most of the time. If you want a simple tip to, to, to help you cut back on screen time, just put your phones on do not disturb. And the second thing, put them on black and white because your brain hates black and white colors. And so that's a little bit about how they get you hooked. It's kind of mind blowing hearing the signs behind it because day to day, you're just like, oh, I'm just going to open Instagram. But the addictive nature of that, I mean, I think a lot of people understand and know that Instagram, for example, is addictive, right? You can spend a lot of, lot of time there. Um, but to be aware of it, a year ago, probably, I turned all my no notifications off. So I, it doesn't ring. It doesn't nothing. And um, some family and friends, Ainsley, sometimes <laughs> get annoyed when I don't answer my phone or when I don't text or respond within a certain amount of time, whatever. I check it enough that it's not like so, so bad. But I knew that I needed to set that boundary up because it was becoming too much that I needed to set the, yeah, those safeguards almost to like, I control my phone. My phone doesn't control me. Exactly. And that's what we need to do. And so when I put mine on, uh, do not disturb, I decide when I'm going to check my phone. I don't let my phone tell me when I need to be picking it up. It's very simple, but you see, that's the psychological warfare and that's why they go to such great ends because they want you to pick it up and they want you to use it. Thereby, they make more money. Mm -hmm. yeah, good for you, Jen, for doing that. Oh, it is not a perfected practice, but uh, yeah. a work and, in and progress. My, and mine neither. But, you know, when I look back on 41 years of ministry, I can only think of one emergency in 41 years. And that's when I had a kid uh, at 15 years old who, who died of an asthmatic attack. And, and that's the only real emergency phone call that, that I've ever had in 41 years. I just think we think that ministry can't go on without us. And therefore, we need to have these things on all the time. You know, we need well-rested, well-disciplined youth workers who know how to use technology to help them be better people. So mm -hmm. anyway, I digress. Good point, Jen. <laughs> Um, you touched on it briefly, but how does all of this affect boys and girls differently? I think of all the research that I've been doing the last few years, well, few years being 30, but that, you know, since, since 2011, certainly with the, the surge in technology. And um, I, I think the difference between boys and girls is, is fascinating. 
So when, when technology came to the psychologist and said, you know, what is the most basic human need a girl has? And then we'll talk about the boys. Psychologist said a girl's most basic human need is to have friends, to be social, to not be rejected in public. In fact, psychologists would say, and I just was reading through another book on the weekend, that the primary experience in life for any girl is a relationship. Primary experience for boys are going to be achieve things, to play sports. But a girl, it's relational. And so technology went back and they came up with stuff like in the, you know, uh, MySpace and the one that Jen mentioned, Vine, and, and all these social media oriented things whereby girls could form groups and be parts of groups there and have that need fulfilled. But I mean, we need to remember that none of our basic needs will ever be fulfilled online, but we also need to remember that the adolescent brain doesn't necessarily understand all of this that's going on. And, you know, relationships for girls is built into their DNA by God. That's just who they are. But they've been conditioned now to, to look for as many likes or rewards or followers or retweets or, you know, post as many great selfies as they can or get long threads and Snapchat, whatever it might be, that says they belong. But in that belonging and in that endless drive to create what you think is the real you, which will never be the real you, and I think girls, you know, come to a certain point, a certain age when they discover that, that this is just phony, but everybody else is playing the game. But it creates two problems for our girls. Number one, this, this curated, this fixed up, this doctored picture, this doctored version of their life that they put out there, they are more likely to be adversely affected by it than boys because there's this gap between appearance and reality. Uh, life is a cyber cell. Uh, so when you and I were growing up, we had self-worth, self-esteem, and a self-image. In this generation, kids now have a thing called the cyber self. And the cyber self is that picture they post before they go to bed at night. It works 24-7. When the girl gets up in the morning, the first thing she does is to check her social media feeds and see how that cyber self did overnight. And if it didn't do well, she begins her day in a very low, dark place. And while they're out there looking at their pictures and looking at everybody else's pictures, you know, they're surrounded and bombarded with hundreds of other curated pictures by their friends and by people that they don't know. And that, that beauty is artificial. And here's the thing that bothers me the most. This is the only place in life where a girl will be rewarded for being something other than what she really is. And what, and what an injustice that is to our young girls, to, to have adults like me and technology to suck them into that dark world. You see, you know, uh, uh, Barnard Research Group calls this the, the, the digital Babylon uh, generation of kids. And, and in digital Babylon, everyone's expected to brand me. But you know, the identities don't stand up. They're always changing. It's very hard for girls to come to terms with that. So that's problem number one. Problem number two for girls is the way that they practice aggression and how aggression plays out online. 
I mean, boys normally will just punch each other out and fight and then go back to playing hockey together. <laughs> girls are very different. Girls are more relationally aggressive and not physically aggressive. And so online, it's very easy to try to hurt your rival's relationships, uh, their reputations, their social status, uh, you know, making them feel like they've been left out, intentionally cutting them out of group pictures that are posted. I mean, so it's a very subtle kind of, of cruelty that girls can practice. And so their aggression will take a number of different forms, calling each other out. You know, and just trying to get a negative reaction. And then some of it is just plain mean, and we understand what that is. It. And so social media for girls hurts them far more than it does boys. And, and I've always used this illustration. Think of it this way. If, if you gave a handgun to every teenager in Canada, a free handgun fully loaded, which would be more harmed by it, boys or girls? Well, boys will be more harmed by it because they're more likely to use the gun in anger or to defend themselves. And it's a much more dangerous thing in the hands of a boy than it is a girl. If we took a fully loaded smartphone with all the bells and whistles and everything you can have to be part of social media, and we put one of those in the pocket of every kid in Canada, which will be more likely to be harmed more, the boys or the girls, and the answer is, it's the girls, because the girls spend more time on their social media than the boys, and the boys tend to be playing video games and approach the whole posting of pictures differently than girls. And so you have the reality that I'm not who I am when I post stuff out there, and you have the whole thing on aggression and what's going on out there. I think it's just interesting that we know how like society already sort of treats women differently than men as far as you know what we put on magazine covers and how girls are expected to look and dress and you kind of like amplify it to this extreme and so young like I remember when I was little you would hear you know if you heard stuff on self-esteem in school it would be about like oh don't compare yourself to the women on magazines but now it's everywhere and it's you're comparing yourself to like fake images too because anybody can now use like you know filters are such a big thing and the filters aren't even just color corrected they're like they warp everything about your face to make it look in their ideal world better and yeah i just think it's crazy how much the rules have just continued to change and make it it's like there's already this unattainable image we just keep raising the bar but then at the same time, as the standards get high, it almost like seems like then there's this accessibility to fake that that bar and pretend that you're that good. It's yeah, I think it's crazy how much and, you know, like you said, as a 23 year old, I can have some awareness of what's going on, but I wouldn't have known that at 13. No. And when you say that, I, I can go into my computer here and pull out a presentation from 1997 uh, on magazine covers and girls. Katy Perry's on the on the cover of uh, Seventeen magazine, and uh, a month later she was on the cover of Cosmopolitan, which is quite a change in magazine covers. Yeah. But they they could work Katy Perry from both angles and create envy and young girls and young women. So yeah, 
And you're, and you're right, and that's a great insight, Ainsley, on your behalf, that it's almost like we've upped the ante, we've upped their ability to almost feel worse about themselves because of the technology that we always, all, uh, that we supply them with. You know, my favorite, my favorite app for taking pictures is the skinny app, which automatically takes 10 pounds <laughs> off my body and my face. <laughs> that's the one that I'm into, so... <laughs> Anyway, so, well, let's talk a little bit about, quickly about boys. When technology was trying to figure out how do we get as many boys addicted online as we can, psychologists said the most basic need in the life of a boy is to accomplish something, a sense of competency, and to be in charge of their environment. And that's how God made men. I mean, we're the hunters, we're the providers, and, and we like to do things. If you ask a man, you know, who are you, he will generally tell you what he does for a living. So we are what we do. And so for boys, you know, they quickly discovered that nothing says accomplishment to boys like online video gaming. And so boys who get addicted to it become very defiant. And, you know, these are a couple of problems for the boys is that they'll be defiant because they want to be in control. When a parent says, you know, you're never going to grow up to be anything if you don't stop playing video games eight hours a day, they go... Who cares? I don't care about that. All I care about is my relationship with my online community, where they are developing a sense of accomplishment and achievement, and where every young kid today who's addicted thinks he's going to be the next you know, game maker, make millions of dollars, and have that dream. And so boys are wired to seek skills and accomplishments and in online gaming, the way they do it is through something called operant conditioning, whereby they discovered that if you give any online gamer, now there are more girls playing online games, but traditionally it's been a boy thing, that if you gave a boy a little reward more frequently, you can literally keep him online forever. As opposed to giving them a big reward at longer intervals, you lose them. So operant condition, little reward. I mean, I watch my grandkids play these games. I play against them sometimes. They always kick my butt, my butt badly, so I don't play a lot. It's not good for my self-esteem. But, but, but they want to master their universe. That's the way God created the boys. And so girls would rather be well-liked and well-thought of, and that's why girls always want the teacher to like them, while boys would rather be in charge more than they'd rather be liked. Most boys don't care if the teacher likes them. They just want to be in charge. They just want to, you know, be the class clown and do their thing. So the second problem, so the first one, they become defined. The second one, it, it leads them to believe that they are special and that they have a hidden destiny that will be revealed in time. That if I just play this long enough, I'm going to become a gaming master and I'm going to make all kinds of money or I'm going to become a designer. And your odds are like one in a million of that kind of stuff happening. And so what happens is because this, this, this fulfillment of their destiny is so strong that they don't believe that the rules of the household apply to them. It's like they become more than, than mere mortals. And so you can tell them to stop playing video games. You can tell them that they aren't good for them. You can tell them that they're wasting their time. And they don't care because the basic need to accomplish something is greater than the words of their parents. That's why that father I talked about at the beginning, his 15-year-old son addicted to games, and he didn't seem that there wasn't anything that he could do 
as a father and a mother. That's because this basic need is so strong, it overrides input from others. So their destiny matters more to them than friendship or their grades or happiness. They often don't expect their parents to understand this thing that they're into, and some of them don't even want their parents to understand. They just want the freedom to be able to go and do this and accomplish something. And, uh, you know, even though their behavior may look very immature to us, in their eyes, this is their journey to manhood. And for parents listening, I would say, you're, you know, if you have a son like that, uh, your, your main job is how do you bring balance? How do you cut back on that time and get him living more time in the real world? So that's the difference between boys and girls as I see it. But as I say, I'm, I'm reading, I'm surrounded by stacks of books. I'm still learning. But I think those ones make sense to most parents and youth workers for sure. So, I mean, some of this is, has come up, but, you know, how does this reality of the online life actually impact our, our real lives? Because there's, you know, pros and cons to using all this technology. But what effect does this online persona in an unhealthy way impact our, our actual real lives outside of that? Yeah, well, I, the best resource that I have found the last few years is uh, Gene Twenge's book, iGen, I, capital G-E-N and not I-J-E-N as in Jen Hubecker, but, uh, <laughs> and she, she done, she's done some extensive research and she comes up with some stuff that's been repeated. For example, uh, research shows that any kid who spends more than two hours a day online, doesn't matter what they're doing, tend to be less happy. They're just, they're losing out on real life experiences. Now we have kids that are spending four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hours a day. And so we know that this generation is unhappy and that was even pre-pandemic. And now a lot of them are really, really unhappy and we end up with a lot of the mental health issues that we've seen. Uh, Twenge talks about how this generation, again, prior to the pandemic was the loneliest generation since 1991. And now, you know, I just wrote a, an article for Toronto Youth Unlimited on loneliness. Uh, you know, Sick Kids Toronto reporting increases in anxiety and stress and depression and suicidal ideation. And, and behind all of those mental health issues is loneliness. And so that's why this whole issue uh, of mental health with uh, our kids has intensified. Uh, Twenge also showed that, and this one has been repeated over and over, that kids today since 2011 uh, 2007 smartphones came out, 2011 iPads came out. And since then, kids today have 50% fewer real life friends. Why? Because they're on their screens all the time. And that's not good. And, uh, and, and then you get into, you know, the fear of missing out. You're worried about what other people are thinking. thinking. I, I mean, it's, it's had, I, I think, more of a negative effect on us than a positive effect. But again, I'm pro-technology. We need to learn how to use it in a healthy way. Uh, I have a, a one-hour webinar called 50 Practical Responses to Your Screens. That was 48, and I found two more last week. So now we're up to 50 on, on how we can have a healthy relationship with technology. But uh, we have to be very, very careful with it. 
I think the thing that's standing out to me in our conversation so far is, is the impact, obviously, but it's always around, like it is consuming, it's hard to walk away from. And so these effects that are, ha- are that are impacting girls, boys, young adults, and even adults too, you see, um, you know, like a lot of young adults gaming still, right? Like it, there's these patterns that don't necessarily stop once you get older. Um, Can you talk to us about how we discern our real identity from our online identity? Um, Because it seems like the line gets blurred a a lot of the times. Yeah, and and that's a great question because uh, there's this fog between this reality and that reality. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like... uh, I think instinctually, we want to be the real person in real life. I think a hobby for a lot of our kids and for a lot of adults, I mean, we we focus on kids, but a lot of adults have issues with this as well, is that how do we learn how to live more of our life here in the real world? And so, you know, I, I scribbled out five things this morning when I was looking at that question. Uh, Number one, I think we need to do more life in real time and in real space. We need to do more life in real time and real space, which means we need to learn to to get rid of our screens, uh, to be more disciplined about them. Uh, You know, the problem with technology is we bring it into our house. So every time there's a new piece of technology and Christians are just as guilty about this as the non-church people is that we bring all the new gadgets, you know, the, all the voice reacting machines that we can have, you know, and, and we don't think about the implications of it. So when you bring a computer into your house, it's like Pandora's box. It's like a Trojan horse. And then all these issues come up. And I would really encourage Christians to be thinking about how can I do more life in real time and, and be wiser about how technology shapes us. The second thing, and, and these next three, uh, I, you know, I'm going to go and add them to some other seminars on practical responses. Uh, number two would be focus on your character. Focus on your character. Everything online when it comes to you is about the visible you. It, it's, you know, I think of, of David in the Old Testament when they were looking for somebody to lead Israel and there was little David at the end of the line, just a runt. He didn't look like he was much, but he had something in his heart that God knew was there and he was selected to be the leader. You know, I wrote this out when I was reading a, a book on my back patio. Character is currency. Character is currency. When you get past your high school years and your college years, it's not going to be what you posted on social media or how many games you won that will make you the person that you are. It will be what kind of character do I have? I've raised four sons. We had four boys in less than six years. You talk about chaos. And this was was before screen, so you had to do everything with your kids. But I tried to teach them as I do my grandsons that everything you say and everything you do is a reflection of your character. When you talk to mom like that this morning, what does that tell me about your character? What does that tell me about the kind of person you're becoming? 
when you post that picture of yourself, what does it tell me about you? What does that tell me about what you, what's important to you? And so, you know, maybe I'll have a new website called characterscurrency.com where kids can come and, and talk about character development and those things. And, and these are the things that parents need to be teaching their kids to be people of character because, you know, 40 years from now, it's going to be about your character, not about your social media platforms. Number two, kind of building on that one, focus on your gifts. Focus on your gifts and your passions and your talents. God has placed a gift and talent inside every one of us, uh, including everybody who's listening. Every one of your children have a gift or a passion that God has put inside them. And it's our job as parents and as youth workers to help our kids discover who they are. And so if I was a youth worker and I've got all my kids that are on these various social media platforms, you know, I want to look at all of them and go, but what about their character? How can I teach them to be hardworking? How can I teach them to be disciplined? How can I teach them to show up for things on time? How can I teach them to be a person of integrity, empathetic, and just go, there's a new book called Thrivers, that I have uh, by uh, Dr. Michelle Borda. Uh, she wrote some other books, Thrivers. And it's, I think it's eight characteristics, uh, character qualities that every young person needs. That's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. And so when you help your kids discover their gifts and passions, they will live a fulfilled life. I have four sons who range from 36 to 42 or whatever their age range is now. And I've never heard them complain about work. Why? It's because I believe they are doing the gift or passion or talent that God instilled in them. And none of them are in ministry. They'd be lousy in ministry. That's not their talents. That's not their passion. So when you can connect your kid to a, a passion or talent, that's a great thing. And again, just a shameless webinar plug. I have a one-hour webinar on how to help your kids discover their gifts and talents and passions. Number four, focus on building relationships with real people. Now, I know that's hard now, but if you're going to be online talking to somebody, do something that's live and interactive so that you can read body language and tone of voice and see their faces and this kind of things. And gather around you people who will speak into your life. You're more than an algorithm on the internet. You're more than a statistic. You're a child of God. And so grow up to be a child of God, looking at your passions and your talents and what God expects of you. And, and it, it will be an exciting light. But we need real people. I mean, I started to work in the grocery store when I was 11 years old. I've worked my whole life. But when I was 11 working in the grocery store, I can remember... The first day I went to work on a Saturday morning, my dad said to me, what time do you have to be at work? I said, nine o'clock. He said, be there at 10 to nine. I said, 10 to nine? I don't get paid at 10 to nine. He goes, you go to work and be there at least 10 minutes early, preferably 15 minutes. I didn't know what my dad was talking about. I didn't know what my dad was talking about most of the time. So at 11 years old, I show up at the grocery store and I actually peddled groceries to people's homes. It was free delivery. I was way ahead of Amazon. <laughs> we're, we're, ta we're talking 1964. I, pedal my, I bring the groceries to your house. You pay me for them and I bring the money back to the store. What my dad was instilling in me was a respect for work. He taught me many things. 
But those are the kind of character things that, that parents are losing because we're spending too much time as parents and as kids on the screens. And, and the last one, and it's more of a question, and especially if you're listening and you're a teenager or you're under 25, what do you do for fun that doesn't involve a screen? And if you don't have an answer to that, I would encourage you to find things to bring a sense of joy and happiness to your life that doesn't involve being in front of a screen and being on the internet. Because out there, that's where life is lived. And that's where you will grow and become the person that God has intended it to be. So there's my top five. Nice. Some good things. And yeah, we'll have to, we'll probably be hearing a little bit more from you in a webinar in the future where we can talk a little bit more. Um, but one, one last question, and I find this an interesting question because it's getting asked a little bit more in society from my observation, and that's what costs are we paying if we don't do anything about how we use social media? What is the cost of not ever paying attention to these real things and actually doing something about it? Well, I, I think we've damaged already a whole generation of kids mm-hmm. because, you know, in my 50 practical responses to screens, one of them is this. It's one I made up. Tie 10% of your screen time to serving the local community, your neighbors, you know, just doing something for others rather than being on screen. So if you spend 10 hours a week on a screen, cut that back to nine and give one hour to serving others. God has called us to be servants and to reach out and to, and to be that. Uh, I think one of the things that this generation has lost is their ability to carry on real life relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you go in for a job interview and the, and the, the guy on the other side of the table who's going to sign your paycheck asks you a question, you can't go, well, what's your text number? And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to you with a text. Life doesn't work that way. And I'm sure you've seen those on YouTube, the interviews with millennial generation. You've got to be to work at 8 a.m. 8 a.m.? You know, you know, again, it comes back to a lot of that character stuff. The good news is that our kids are resilient. That's the way God made them. And I think in this pandemic, you know, give our kids two or three years to bounce back and to get their feet on the ground, and they'll do just fine. Uh, but we're in a bit of a battle right now, and screens plus pandemic have been an awful thing for our kids. And with this, I and I say it this way, our kids have been in a pandemic, basically a shutdown for 15 months. If you take 15 months as a percentage of a 15-year-old's life, that's a significant portion of their life. If you take 15 months out of the life of me as a 69-year-old man, that's not a very big percentage. And not only is that a large percentage of their lifetime for our young people, but it comes at a critical time where they are developing socially, moral, morally, spiritually, intellectually. And that's where the damage has been done. And so once we get through the pandemic, we still need to be smart on how we're using our technology. Good question, Ainsley. I feel, well, I don't feel, I know we're just scratching the surface on a lot of these topics. Um, But to wrap up our time, you have the final word. Can you, um, what would you say to young people, to parents, um, to sum up what, uh, what you shared with us today? I think we need to find ways to use technology to make us 
to be healthier people. There's all kinds of good things that have come from technology. Uh, I think our, our 25 and under, but especially our 20 and under age group, have been terribly exploited by you know, the corporate world and that we need to do a better job as youth workers and parents to show our kids that you can live a fulfilled life without being in front of a screen. I can remember speaking at a Christian school over near Godridge a couple of years ago, and I had 90 grade seven and grade eight students in the auditorium. And I said, how many of you own or have access to your own smartphone? Every hand but one went up. It was a little girl in grade seven. Her name was Summer. I said, Summer, I want to tell you before all of your friends and I want to assure you that you will grow up to be a perfectly healthy, normal young person if you never have a screen in front of you. And you will do fine. In fact, I would bet that you will do better than others who get addicted to screens. Yeah, I, yeah, the final mic drop is all I have, <laughs> I have to say. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Again, this is scratching the surface on a lot of different things. Um, how can people find you and access your resources? paulrobertson.ca. Uh, my mother called me Paul Robertson, so I stuck with that name. <laughs> paulrobertson.ca. Uh, all the webinars, there's 14 webinars that I do. They're one hour. Uh, I teach for 45 minutes, leave 15 minutes for Q&A. There's no cost. I have a, a dear friend in Charlottetown who has paid all my speakers fees for the next couple of years. And so there's no charge. It doesn't matter to me how many people show up. Uh, it's the same presentation for two or 20 or 200. Uh, I just want to, to help any adult who is working with kids, whether they're parents, youth pastors, teachers, whoever, better understand today's youth culture and thereby have a deeper relationship with the kids in their sphere of influence. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We have more amazing conversations like this coming up that you will not want to miss. So make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using so you never miss a Monday episode. And you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Just Work Friends. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you gave us a review on whichever platform you're on so we can see what you guys are enjoying about it. Once again, thanks so much for listening. Have a happy Monday. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs> bye. <laughs> you always, it doesn't matter if you see all these other things. And you still have to throw the bye in there. It doesn't feel complete. <laughs>